Today's episode is with Richard Booth. He has just done incredible work deep diving into the lies and trying to find the truth when it comes to the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, he Much of his work is over on Libertarian Institute. I'll link to all of his contacts down below so that you guys can follow his work and dive deeper if you'd like to. This is an incredibly in-depth story, and it, it could take... 15, 20 hours to really uncover everything that he's uh, he's researched over the years. But I condensed it into about an hour and you will come away both shocked and appalled and hopefully uh, engaged in this story because there has been egregious injustice and that's what I try and highlight on this show. Um, it's tough to look at sometimes, but uh, I think that you know we have to be aware of what's transpired and what the government has done to us and in our name to others. It is a, uh, it's a tragedy, honestly. Once again, this episode will be brought to you ad-free as I do not want to interrupt the discussion with Mr. Booth, uh, but please do hit that like button, hit the subscribe button and uh, leave a comment down below so that it helps boost the algorithms. Also, obviously, if you can share it, if you want to clip it, if you want to you know, put it out on different social media platforms. I always appreciate that. Just get the word out to people. And last but not least, if you want to support my work, go to libertylockdown.locals.com. Enjoy the interview. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? Welcome everybody back to Liberty Lockdown. This is Clint Russell, your humble host, and I am joined today by Richard Booth. He has done some of the best I'm going to call it investigative reporting, whether he does or not, because goodness gracious, this is an investigation and you have been on the, the cutting edge. I've watched the vast majority of your series uh, with Jose Galasan over on No Way Jose. I highly recommend people go check that out for the deep dive if you want to go 10 plus hours deep. And if you want the, the truncated version, uh, that's what I'm hoping to deliver here. I feel like this is a really important story. This is about the OKC bombing. Um, it is a wash in mysteries and conspiracy and nefariousness, uh, if that's a word. It is just one of the craziest uh, moments, I think, in my lifetime and, and one of the unfortunately least talked about on the mainstream until like the past couple weeks. Uh, so I knew that if I was going to bring in an expert, this was the guy, Richard Booth. Thank you for joining me. So uh, for those that are too young, because I'm sure I have some in the audience that are too young, if you could just give a brief summation of, of what transpired on that day, and then we'll get into, you know, the theories. So basically, I'm going to go over the official narrative with uh, the uh, Oklahoma City bombing, give people an idea what uh, the authorities like to, to say happened. So basically, April 19th, 1995, there was a bombing in Oklahoma City um, at 9.02 a.m., uh, the official narrative says that Timothy McVeigh drove a rider truck from Kansas to Oklahoma City, uh, where he uh, parked the truck and fled the scene, uh, detonating a massive ammonium nitrate fuel oil bomb. Uh, the narrative says then that he got into his Mercury Marquis uh, and uh, drove away from Oklahoma City. He was on the uh, freeway uh, when he got pulled over. Uh, but he had no license plate on this vehicle, so not a very uh, smart. It's a great getaway vehicle. Come on, right. perfect getaway vehicle. Um, so he's pulled over, 
And uh, he actually was looking really suspicious that day. You know, he has on this T-shirt that talks about the tree of liberty must be refreshed <laughs> time to time. That quote, uh, he's got like a six inch knife on his belt and he has his Glock pistol uh, in a shoulder holster. And uh, the police officer, the highway patrol officer who pulled him over actually noted the, the, the pistol and uh, he uh, arrested him for carrying a concealed weapon, which you would think, you know, if you've just fled this terrorist bombing, you would leave the knife and the gun in the trunk and be non-suspicious. But that's not what he had in mind that day, I guess. So anyway, he, uh, he, he's taken into custody and he is put in the jail waiting arraignment. And what happened here basically is the federal authorities began investigating this bombing right away, of course, and uh, they found the axle to the truck. And that axle, they were able to use that to trace it to a truck that had been rented in Kansas on April 17th. And they go and they interview the people at the rental agency, which was called Elliott's Body Shop. And bear in mind that this rental occurred just two days before the bombing. So it was relatively recent when these witnesses were interviewed. And anyhow, they, uh, the three witnesses here at the body shop were the owner, Eldon Elliott, um, a receptionist named Vicki Beamer, and a mechanic named Tom Kessinger. And they all three pretty much recalled the same thing. And that was to say that um, on the 17th, uh, two men came into the agency to rent uh, a truck and they provided uh, descriptions of these two individuals to the FBI. Uh, the FBI then had a sketch artist make sketches of the two of them. And these sketches were then produced on April 20th uh, by the FBI. Now, the FBI agents took these sketches to local businesses there in Kansas, and they happened to go to one called Pat's Gun and Pawn, which was a gun and pawn shop. And at this location, uh, the owner recognized the individual in uh, sketch number one, uh, because he, he said that it looked just like a guy who'd purchased from him a uh, Tech 9 and a Glock pistol and had paid for that using a uh, basically a bounced a check right and hmm. so that's quite a bit of money right there and he just shorted this guy on these firearms who had reason to remember this person and so he goes and he pulls the firearm uh, documentation which he had and it has you know the name tim mcveigh all that stuff there on it and so separately from that, uh, the FBI also visited a local hotel called the Dreamland Hotel, which is where McVeigh had stayed for about a week prior to the bombing. The owner of the hotel, uh, her name um, was, uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank right now, but That's okay. um, anyhow, uh, she identified um, the John Doe One sketch as being Tim McVeigh. And she told the FBI that he was driving, he had this Mercury marquee and it was kind of shabby looking. And she noted, in fact, that the license plate was hanging off by one bolt. Um, her name was uh, Leah McGowan. So anyway, with Leah McGowan and with Pat Livingston at Pat's Gun and Pawn, you have two people who are identifying uh, Tim McVeigh as the person who is in that the person in the sketch and so the fbi uses um, the information they have on him to search the national criminal databases and they see that he is residing uh, in the jail there in oklahoma and so they go and they take him into custody and while this is happening uh, terry nichols the second person who was convicted for the bombing uh, was listening to the coverage on the radio 
and he heard his own name mentioned in relation to the bombing. The reason for that is Tim McVeigh had used his brother, James Nichols's uh, farm as his address on his driver's license and when he checked into the hotel. So that information was leaked from the FBI investigation and to the media. And so they mentioned James Nichols and Terry Nichols. Terry, here's his name. He goes and he turns himself in at the police. Why, why is Terry Nichols listening to that? He's just listening to the coverage. Oh, you know? gotcha. Because I mean, okay. just the coverage of the day, right? I it's, thought I thought you meant he was listening to the police scanner. Oh, so. oh the scanners, right, right. No, th yeah, that would definitely be kind of suspicious, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be um, weird. But what he, one thing that is rather unusual is he he didn't have cable television, and he actually ordered cable television on April nineteenth. So he's having cable installed at his house. Obviously, he's going to want to watch this coverage. So he certainly is. I think guilty, most certainly. Yeah. Um, so the FBI, they go and they get McVeigh out of the jail and now they have him in custody. Meanwhile, the second suspect uh, who, whose uh, description uh, was provided by the same people who are so accurate about John Doe 1, uh, this other guy, John Doe 2, is described as about five foot eight to five foot nine, about 200 pounds, uh, very muscular, um, darker skin tone, black hair, uh, dragon tattoo on his left arm, um, possibly a smoker. These are details all from the witnesses. Um, and, and this person was never located. Um, the, um, the FBI actually eventually, after several months, changed their story and said, oh, he doesn't exist. He never existed. And they come up with some ridiculously bogus misidentification theory, whereby the, these witnesses are somehow totally accurate about John Doe 1, uh, but then they're just imagining things with John Doe too. Hmm. Um, now, the reason we know that that whole thing is bogus is the, these witnesses, uh, such as Eldon Elliott, are adamant that they saw two people come in to pick up the truck that day when the truck was rented. Right. So that's and ultimately if, the official. If they nail the McVeigh, if they nail the McVeigh sketch, and their recollection is that solid, you have to assume that they're right about him being with someone else in the sketch, probably being accurate. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And there is actually um, some little known details concerning um, the the Ryder Rental Truck Agency. And that is the fact that they also they had another mechanic there named Fernando Ramos. And I've seen the, the FBI insert, which is similar to an FBI 302, that describes what Ramos told the FBI. And what he said is on April 17th, he observed a Jeep Grand Cherokee pull up and John Doe one and two get out of that vehicle and go in to pick up the truck. And so according to this guy, at least, the two people arrived in this Jeep Grand Cherokee and then presumably McVeigh leaves in the truck and the other guy leaves in the Jeep. Mm -hmm. uh, but prior to that, um, we just have this story from McVeigh where he claims that some, um, that a, uh, like a innocent bystander or whatever just gives him a ride to Elliot's body shop. The story in and of itself is ridiculous and it's hmm. completely unbelievable, but it's something he concocted to explain how he got from a nearby McDonald's uh, to the uh, body shop because he was caught on, he was on video at that McDonald's and it was timestamped. So we okay. knew his lo location. So so the implication there is that McVeigh is, is covering for John Doe too. 
Absolutely. He's covering for John Doe, too. And it seems in this case that he will cover for anybody and everybody involved except for Terry Nichols, almost as if like he's using Nichols as kind of a scapegoat where he would uh, just blame things on him and cover for everyone else. Well, I mean, based off of what you said about Nichols getting cable the day of the bombing because he wanted to watch the coverage, it seems as if he was guilty, as you said. So why? I mean, why is McVeigh? not covering for him i mean even like there's other people that are involved so why why right. is nichols fair game i'm just curious right now that's a good question and what you see, uh, look, what you see here when you look at it is it seems that mcveigh had some level of compartmentalization going on where he is meeting with these other figures who kind of all know each other and they're in this white supremacist network mm -hmm. whereas terry nichols is someone who doesn't know these other people okay. right he just knows mcveigh and so mcveigh is sort of using terry nichols he was using him uh using his phone card uh getting loans from him money um, using storage lockers rented under his name. So oh, wow. it very much looks like he is using Terry Nichols and he is not um, including Nichols in the planning that's going on with these other figures. Almost <laughs> like he is um, in advance calculated that he's, if there will be an investigation and they try to say that he had help, he's going to say that it's, oh yeah, just this other guy. Got it. Okay. I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you keep going, man. I, uh, that's, sure. I just, I'm just asking questions as like what I think the audience might ask as you go. So. Okay. So yeah, the, the key thing that I think um, is important here is that uh, John Doe too uh, was not just observed by the people at Elliot's body shop. Indeed, you have this person who's there when the truck is rented, but then on the day of the bombing on April 19th, the FBI is of course interviewing all of these people in downtown Oklahoma City. And as a result of that, uh, those interviews and the investigation, they have something like two dozen witnesses, 24 witnesses who all observed the yellow Ryder truck uh, with McVeigh in it. And every single one of them said that there was a passenger in the rider truck and you this goes to down to people who maybe just uh were observed it from their vehicle or uh they saw the the truck driving by all the way up to people who actually interacted with tim mm -hmm. mcveigh when he pulled into a, a tire shop that morning and he spoke to one of the employees there for several minutes and this employee said, you know, he, as he's standing there and he's talking to McVeigh, he sees there's an individual in the truck in the passenger seat matching the description of John Doe 2 wearing a baseball cap. And so you have 24 witnesses and uh, eyewitness accounts can be unreliable, most certainly. Uh, sure. But what I find striking is if you have this number of, of witnesses who all saw the same thing and they're not talking about crazy details, it's just like, oh, there were two people there right? Mm -hmm. That's really simple. That's the kind of thing where I think, you know, I, I can remember if I saw two people or one person. Yeah. So well, especially if you got so many people saying the same thing. Absolutely. Right. So they've all, they've all seen this. And so what happened here is very interesting. The federal government, uh, when they were at trial, never called any of these witnesses to testify. And I find it interesting because they could have put someone on the stand who could have pointed to McVeigh in court and said it was him. I saw him. I saw him get out of the truck. They even they even had a guy who was driving a catering truck by the Murrah building um, right after the Ryder truck was parked and McVeigh and John Doe 2 got out of it. And then McVeigh and John Doe 2 crossed the street. And, and in doing so, 
they run in front of this catering truck and this driver, Rodney Johnson, puts on the brakes, right? Mm. And he observes the two pass in front of the vehicle. So they have a prime witness there who could have put McVeigh at the crime scene. And it speaks volumes to me that they didn't call the guy at all. And they because they don't of, want them to ask about John Doe too. That's that seems right, right. crystal clear. That's the only that's reason. That's exactly it. That's exactly yeah. it. And I speculate the reasons for that. I think one the Occam's razor type you know reasoning would say, oh well, if they introduce the idea of others and they cannot account for these others, that could then jeopardize their case mm -hmm. against McVeigh. And that's probably what happened. Sure. Well, it, it could be that, or it could be that John Doe two is is someone that they don't want to be. Uh, busted for it, but that's just that's a going a little bit too far ahead. Um, uh, go ahead and continue with the the story sure. as we wherever you well, feel. Sure. There, you know, there are actually very good reasons to suspect that, and I myself uh, and some other researchers do believe that John Doe too might be a Fed, uh, based upon things we've seen happening in the investigation. Um, I'll get into that here in a little bit, but sure. Um, what I'm thinking about here, I guess, is that you've got all these witnesses in downtown Oklahoma City. And what I did here is um, when I started getting into this case, uh, all I had to go on was what was in the books. And there was only a couple books on the bombing. You know, there was one that came out in 1997 by David Hoffman, which has some pretty good stuff in it. Um, and then Roger's book, Roger Charles and Andrew Gumbel put out a book in 2012, which is mm -hmm. called Oklahoma City, What the Investigation Missed and Why It Still Matters. I urge your audience to go out and get that book now. It's fantastic. So uh, when I get into it, I'm just reading these books. Well, I wanted to find more. So what I did is I went through various databases um, that, that had uh, newspaper archives on them. And I started uh, searching. And ultimately, what I ended up doing was archiving about 1,400 news reports on the bombing. And I put them in chronological order. And then I read them. And in going through these, I started to pull out the names of witnesses, um, I got, you know, so I was getting citations, you know, I could say, right. that, you know, this came from here. And so ultimately I put it all together in kind of a chronology. And after doing that, you really get an idea as to what was happening in downtown Oklahoma City. And you can see at various points in time where these witnesses, you know, what they observed and kind of get an idea as to what, what happened uh, that right. morning. And what that looks like to me is very similar to what the F the FBI told the media just a week after the bombing. They told the LA Times that they believed that this was the work of a group of four to five people. And that is certainly what it looks like when you look at the witness accounts. You see in downtown Oklahoma City, a convoy that was consisting of a Ryder truck, a Mercury Marquis, and a brown pickup. And um, one example of that, for example, is a witness named Kyle Hunt. He was a bank executive at the Bank of Oklahoma, and he was going to work that morning. And as he's going to work, he pulls up to a stoplight, and directly to the right of him, he sees this kind of shabby Mercury marquee. And he, what he noted was, you know, the driver was kind of giving a, he was, he was mean mugging him, you know, he was mm. giving him a dirty look, and he remembered that. And the general shabby appearance of the vehicle, the fact that he, he said that there were two other people in that vehicle with a person he identified as Tim McVeigh. He did identify him as the driver of the vehicle. And in front of the Mercury marquee is the Ryder truck. So you've got two people in the, the marquee with McVeigh 
and then at least one person uh, in the rider truck. So, you know, the right there, you've got three people. Mm-hmm. And that very much jibes with what other witnesses saw as McVeigh was making stops at gas stations between Kansas and Oklahoma City. He, it looked like he was ensuring that he kept a full tank of gas in the truck. And these various witnesses from the gas stations, <clears throat> they would observe McVeigh uh, coming into the, the station to pay for the gas. And as an example, uh, one of these witnesses is named Richard Sennett. He worked at a Save-A-Trip station in Kansas. Uh, he says that at about 1 or 2 a.m. on April 19th, so very early, um, and this is right at the borders in southern Kansas, uh, he sees a convoy pull into the Save-A-Trip. And this convoy has a rider truck. It has a um, uh, um, a, a pickup truck and a sedan and uh he Probably only the marquee well the the hard part there is um the marquee <clears throat> we know mcveigh stored it and left it overnight in the mm. alley okay and so it's kind of unknown what was happening there but what we do know from that encounter is that the rider truck parked to get fuel and out of the rider truck comes tim mcveigh and john doe too and they both go in to the save a trip and uh, Senate says that McVeigh went to use the restroom and John Doe too, who he said matched exactly the description in the sketch, purchased a sandwich from the deli counter. And he, he says then that McVeigh comes out of the bathroom, he pays for the gas and the sandwich, the two leave together, and then he watches them get into sort of an argument outside of the Save a Trip. and said mm-hmm. that McVeigh kind of was waving his hands around and getting getting in the face of John Doe too, like a top sergeant, like he, and one thing we know about McVeigh is he was using crystal meth at this time. So obviously mm-hmm. he's very aggressive. He's probably paranoid. He's probably fighting with these people at some points in time. And that's, I'm just speculating, but that seems to be a likely excuse possibly for why he may have been so aggressive with this John Doe two figure. Um, but w- overall, uh, I guess my main point is, is that we just have a number of witnesses, a tapestry of witnesses that when you put into a chronology, you see they're moving from Kansas uh, down to Oklahoma City. They're making stops along the way. Many people are observing them. And the government has all of these witnesses that they could have testify at trial. Now, one thing that I want to mention about that that was, really got my attention is the FBI's first chief investigator on this case, a gentleman named Weldon Kennedy, uh, put out a book in 2007 called On Scene Commander. And of course, he, it's a memoir. Um, he's reflecting on his time at the FBI. And in this memoir, one of the things he said was that uh, this would be a case that is based on forensic evidence because there were no eyewitnesses. And that just blew me away. I thought, yeah. wow, I mean, wow, I've just got wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've got like tw- between twenty and thirty here right. in this chronology, and I thought that's a very interesting statement for him to have made. Yeah. Um, now that um, that memoir came out actually about a year after a BBC production. And this BBC production was centered on the Oklahoma City bombing. 
And on that production, it featured Danny Coulson, who is a former uh, founder of the FBI's hostage rescue team. Mm. And he himself was also an on-scene commander in the Oklahoma bombing investigation in charge of the crime scene. And he uh, he spoke on very candidly on this BBC production. And he actually said, uh, we know that there were 24 witnesses who saw Timothy McVeigh with another person. Um, he said, you know, I could understand if it was maybe just one or two people, but 24 people, that's pretty powerful. And so you've got Colson on there saying that, and at the time it did get considerable attention. So I find it interesting that the Bureau then has one of their people put in his memoir just a few months after this production that there were no eyewitnesses. Yeah. And it, I mean, that could have been written, uh, you know, by the FBI for all we know, but, uh, all right. So what I find fascinating about this, uh, they, you say that the FBI's early assessment after a week of investigating after the event is that there's four to five accomplices, most likely. Yes. You, you have now said that in front of the building on that day, you have eyewitnesses that are, are eyewitnesses for three? Is that correct? We have one, at least one eyewitness, Kyle Hunt, who, who who could say for sure at least 30 minutes before the bombing that he saw McVeigh in a vehicle with two other people. And then you have at least one in the Ryder truck. So we know for a fact there's three. And then Terry Nichols is in Kansas. That would make four. Yeah. Got so, it. yeah. Okay. They said four to five people after just a week of, of investigating. So now after after your research, do you think that four is the the right number? I actually think it's a little bit higher than that. I would put it okay. probably more about six. And here's why I say that. Um, you have, in addition to um, McVeigh and these other suspects, um, the figures of Roger Moore and Michael Fortier. And these are two people who served as the government's chief star witnesses at trial. And what it seems the government did here is interesting is they get rid of all of the eyewitnesses who could put McVeigh at the crime scene. And what they do is they take two co-conspirators, Roger Moore and Michael Fortier, co-conspirators should have been co-defendants, and they turn them into star witnesses, right? Mm -hmm. And so these guys are going to get a pretty good deal. In the case of Roger Moore, no charges or nothing. In Michael Fortier's case, he goes to prison for something like 10 years. Hmm. Uh, but in doing this, they were um, able to avoid having to call any eyewitnesses. Uh, but those two people should have been co-defendants in the case, most certainly. Roger Moore funded the bombing. He was directly involved with McVeigh. Terry Nichols says that. That's one of the few people uh, in this conspiracy that Nichols did know. Right. Uh, and he, he said that he uh, was a uh, active participant in the bombing and that he actually provided the detonators that were used in the bomb. Hmm. Is there is there a lot of money in an operation like this? It doesn't seem like it would be that costly. I, I don't know, though. No, you're correct. It, it wouldn't be that costly to um, basically rent a truck and to pay for the ammonium nitrate. You're looking at probably just several thousand dollars um, right. for the ammonium nitrate and for the um, uh, nitromethane. Um, but you also have the various hotel stays. Now, note that Timothy McVeigh is not employed at this time. He's okay. just going and he's working on the gun show circuit with Roger Moore. And you're not making a great deal of money just selling, you know, canteens and stuff at a gun. Yeah. Show. Yeah. No, I was just curious because, you know, a couple thousand dollar operation, it's like, well, it seems like you could bootstrap that if you were some radical that just wanted to do something crazy. Um, all right. So you have 
McVeigh, who who obviously goes down for this, and then you have uh, it was Nichols is also what was what were their sentences? So um, McVeigh was he got the death penalty, and Terry Nichols basically is life in prison at uh, the serving that currently at Supermax Prison. Interesting. Does he does he do interviews to this day? Well, he uh, is in a position where they do a kind of a um, communi communications management where they basically take a person and kind of lock them away from the world. And I think that this, this communications management thing is supposedly designed to prevent terrorists from communicating mm -hmm. with their network outside the prison. Wow. What it actually looks like to me is a way to prevent anyone from interviewing these people <laughs> yeah, i mean that from from my side of the fence that's sure that's sure what it sounds like but uh god what an interesting dynamic all right so i think that you know obviously i would be remiss not to to ask about um some of the other figures that uh, mysteriously die uh shortly thereafter and you know my my buddy jose has popularized on timcast uh mr terence yiki and uh and then also trenadu who appears to have been murdered in prison on a, on a false identify, uh, identification instance. I don't know how else to describe it. So if you could give both of those stories, um, just for those that aren't aware, I'd appreciate it. Absolutely. Both stories, I think, are timely right now, especially with Terry Yiki, because CNN ran a piece, I think it was on you know the 5th, Right. Um, just a few days ago, um, they ran a story on uh, saying who who killed or how, why did this Oklahoma City police officer wind up dead? And so what the story is with Terry Yiki is he, he was a first responder. He was a police officer in Oklahoma City. And when the bombing happened, he was just a couple blocks away. He went to uh, the bombing site. He was actually the first person to arrive there. And he began rescue efforts and he saved the lives of several people that morning. Um, and he continued to work there at the, the bombing site, um, helping, Incredible. you know, yeah. And so <clears throat> he was one of these first responders. And what happened here is Terry Yiki um, was very upset and disturbed about something that he had discovered uh, in relation to his activities down there that morning. And, um, one thing we know, for example, is he wrote like about a nine page report for his superiors um, as to, you know, the events of that day. And his superiors forced him to edit that and told him to reduce it down to one page. And we still don't know what it was that he put in that report. Um, but he oh, evidently that's terrible. Yes. Yes. He ran into major problems with the brass at the Oklahoma City Police Department. They kind of viewed him as becoming um, adversarial, I guess, because he's upset about something and right. he wants justice, you know. Um, and he sees, for example, he was nominated for like a, to receive like a Medal of Valor or something like that. But he noted that there were some people who had absolutely nothing to do with the rescue operations who were being given awards as well. Um, but what they all had in common is they were all touting the official story mm -hmm. and not questioning anything. And he, he didn't like what he saw there. So ultimately, what we know is that Terry began an investigation of his own. And what part of that investigation was is that he, um, in the audience, if people don't know this, back in the 1990s when you had 
um, analog video uh, like VHS, you would have to have um, it's a tape, and the tape is played in a VCR. And in order to make a copy of a tape, you actually had to have two VCRs, one to play the tape and one to record the copy. Mm -hmm. And what we know about Terry is that he had his own VCR and that he showed up at his ex-wife Tanya's uh, home, who he was still very close to, and they were sort of reconciling. And he um, borrowed her VCR. And evidently, he did use that to make a copy of something. And he returned that to her. He uh, put the VCR with a, uh, a tape still in it in her vehicle. And that ultimately, after he was found dead, that disappeared completely. We don't know where it went. It was stolen or removed from her wow. vehicle. So what happened with Terry, though, is about a year after the bombing, um, he is supposedly going to meet a couple of federal agents. He's talking to this per person who's a friend of his, and he says um, he's going to meet a couple of feds that he wants to turn over to them all of the uh, material from his own investigation. He thinks this is the right thing to do, and this is who I need to talk to. Uh, but he has some reservations about it because he did express those reservations to his confidant, Ramona, and told her he was a little worried um, what she noted is that um, he didn't bring his service weapon with him to that meeting. So he goes to meet these two feds, and the next thing you know, his body is found uh, in a ditch in El Reno, Oklahoma, um, quite a distance away from his vehicle. Um, when the El Reno authorities discover this, they find his vehicle is locked and inside of it, it is just covered in blood everywhere. In addition, they see that the vehicle has been stripped. They have, uh, whoever was in there had removed um, parts of the doors to see, I guess, looking to see if something was hidden in the doors. And they had tossed the car, essentially. And so you, you see that and you see blood everywhere. And then they go and they find the body. And the body, uh, when they find it, they find it has uh, both wrists are slit. Um, the throat is cut. Um, he was shot uh, in the head. Um, and so you've got this gunshot to the head and all of these very violent wounds. And you also find that there, there was grass and dirt embedded in some of the wounds, which makes it look like the body had been dragged to where it was found. Um, also, no weapon was found next to the body right away, which in a suicide, of course, you will find the firearm right away. That wasn't the case here. Instead, what happens is while the El Reno police discovered the crime scene, immediately the Oklahoma City Police Department, the very people who are adversarial with Terry and telling him he needs to change his report and being difficult with him, they take over the investigation. Even though it's completely a different city, it's not their jurisdiction, they take it over. And they bring in the FBI straight away. Well, not too long after the, the feds arrive at the crime scene, now they have found a murder weapon uh, or a so-called suicide weapon. And mm. to this day, that weapon has never been identified. We do not know who, whose firearm it is. We don't know very much about the weapon, what type of weapon it was. I find that to be very suspicious. Well, if, if this is just a suicide, why not identify the firearm that, that, that you know that was found? Well, you that, and why not run ballistics on it? See if it was fired, uh, you know, like if it matches the same caliber. 
to the, the to the wound like all all the cis stuff like they're Absolutely. just going to this guy's been he's he beat the shit out of himself and then shot himself and we're not going to ask any questions like i mean this is just crazy Right. And if you're saying that, that, oh, these are all conspiracy theories, what better way to completely disprove that by using the forensic evidence or, you know, just yeah. answering, answering simple questions in good faith? Yeah. And that's not and, what and happened. Not, and not, not just simple questions, but like must have questions. Like we have to have answers to these things. And uh, you said questions. In a right. Exactly. Like yeah, exactly. And if you're not asking them, then it just raises all sorts of additional red flags. Two quick questions. You said that Ramona was Ramona the ex-wife? No, the ex-wife was Tanya Yiki, and okay. Ramona was sort of, uh, she was a person who kind of made it her business to uh, help out a lot of the Oklahoma City bombing first responders. Got and it. She started kind of a support group, and okay. so he was very close to her for that reason. So, so he reaches out to her, he confides in her that he is a little nervous. Is that kind of what yes. you're saying? He's okay. apprehensive about the meeting. He feels like, um, he he thinks it's firstly the right thing to do to bring this whatever he has to someone's yeah. attention but i think the fatal mistake here that he made is just assuming that he can trust these people i believe yeah. he should have gone to the media um, if yeah. there was a tape that he had the media would have played it no doubt yeah. well either that or, or or make additional copies and have a a dead drop so that you can, you know, maintain leverage over whoever you're meeting with. You also said that he didn't bring his service weapon. If he is, you know, reticent to meet up with these people, why would he not bring his service weapon to try and, you know, keep himself safe? Absolutely right. Idea? That's a, a very good question. It seems maybe irrational. The articles I read about it implied that he actually had felt that he didn't want to bring his service weapon because if something were to happen with to him, he wouldn't want his own weapon to be f used against him. Wow. So, so he was actually the, thinking suicide. Right. And he's, oh my God. Right. That's what's so tragic about it. That's the impression that you get. Yeah. And even the CNN article, you know, MSM, it's not so, it's not Alex Jones or Infowars. That it goes into a lot of these things that we've talked about. I urge people to go read it. It was written by, I believe his name's Thomas Lake, um, CNN, and it was a very good piece. And one of the things we learned from that that was actually relatively new is from an interview with Terry Yiki's sister. And what his sister said is that Terry had told her that he had seen evidence that indicated that the building exploded from the inside out rather than something being outside and blowing up and impacting the building. Right. And so um, I think about that. I think, well, he arrived after the bombing happened. So he obviously didn't see this firsthand. Mm -hmm. And of course, my first thought is that he saw the surveillance video, which in my mind would depict the Ryder truck blowing up. And then on the video, if you're seeing like the building collapse, for example, like a demolition, something like that. I mean, if he saw that, imagine how he, what he would have concluded rather quickly. And it, maybe that speaks to why we haven't seen these surveillance tapes as we know from court records from the Freedom of Information Act lawsuit that there, uh, the FBI had 22 uh, or that is to say they had uh, 23 videos uh, um, in their collection, uh, 22 of them stored at the Oklahoma field office and one of them stored under lock and key at FBI headquarters. And we know that among those surveillance tapes, at least two of them um, show the bombing uh, and or the perpetrators. And we know that from an FBI document which is someone reviewing the various surveillance tapes. And she denoted uh, 
two of them as being of evidentiary value. And furthermore, on top of that, we know from FBI documents that an FBI agent actually tried to sell the surveillance tape to Dateline NBC for nearly a million dollars. Um, and this is something that these FBI documents detail very clearly. And they show that this agent tried to sell it to Dateline, and that included screening the video at an Orange County Sheriff's uh, home in California for people with Dateline. And according to the documents and the article that was written about it, and the, uh, the it was a compilation tape that showed, mul you know, from multiple sources uh, that showed the delivery of the truck bomb, showed the truck pull up, two people get out of it, and it included the explosion. And so this um, situation resulted in an FBI um, Office of Professional Responsibility investigation, which essentially it's like their um, internal affairs. And sure. they're going and investigating this guy who's trying to sell it. Now, I believe, of course, in an investigation like that, they would have identified the individual who was trying to sell it. They would have identified anybody who had access to the surveillance tapes, and they would have gone and probably retrieved that evidence from all of those people. My hope today, though, is still that there might be an agent out there who has a copy of that tape, and those agents are now getting up there in age, and there may might be one, possibly more, uh, who feels that this information needs to get out. So I maintain hope that one day we might see the surveillance tape. Yeah, well, you and me both, brother, but why, how did they get away with not presenting that evidence if they had it at the trial for McVeigh or Abs Nichols. Absolutely right. That's correct. And so what we find with the FBI is they got away with excluding a great deal of information, both to um, through discovery or to people through the Freedom of Information Act. And they, have, they withhold things and they actually have processes in place specifically to do that. Um, for example, in the 1970s, they had something called June Mail, which is a type of file at the FBI that was highly sensitive. And you had, uh, it was stored in a uh, secure location at FBI headquarters, and you had to have a certain clearance to get in there to look at the June Mail files. So anyhow, after it was discovered that they were doing that with this June Mail, they had to stop that process. And what happens in a bureaucracy like that? Well, of course, they will invent and find a new process, which they did, which was called the zero file. And what they would do is if there was a document that had material that they did not want going to discovery or going to FOIA, they would put it in the zero file. And naturally, of course, that was found out as well. Uh, so they stopped doing that. And then they find a new process, which this all was uncovered by Jesse Trinidou in his FOIA lawsuit. Um, they, they then had a method called uh, using something called an S drive uh, and later or the I drive and then the S drive. And this is basically a shared drive where you can put documents before they're uploaded into the official case file. And somebody on the case has to review that material before it gets uploaded into the case file. And through these various methods, they're able to withhold information from making it to discovery or to FOIA. And I believe that Merrick Garland's, uh, our current attorney general, he led the OK Bomb prosecution. And it's my belief then that one of his chief tasks would probably have been to ensure that this surveillance tape was never, um, never handed over a trial and, and no one ever went near it. 
Um, and in fact, he did object during a preliminary hearing uh, on April 27, 1995, any time uh, the witness was asked about the surveillance tape or asked about John Doe 2, he issued stringent objections. Well, I mean, just uh, like if I'm a defense attorney for McVeigh, I'm going to be like, you guys have to give us this footage like so they they just tell them it doesn't exist well the thing is at that time it wasn't uh public knowledge that uh this attempted sale was going to happen um mm. that was in the fall of 1995 and no one really knew about it um what we do know is that stephen jones the chief prosecutor he should well have known because on october 28th of 1995 a report was published by the associated press Every major newspaper in the country runs AP articles. And so this article would have been in pretty much every daily paper. And this article said that uh, surveillance tape shows passenger and bomb truck. And the article talks about how the FBI had obtained surveillance tape showing the bombing, which shows the rider truck, and it shows that there's a passenger in the truck. And uh, this is something that Stephen Jones should have been well aware of based upon those newspaper articles. And uh, the only thing I can think of is that um, as his attorney, I think evidence like that would tend to incriminate uh, his, uh, his client. And so he wouldn't have, well, of course he doesn't want to see it presented, but you would think at least he would be curious and he would want to see it. Yeah, I mean, uh, like, Either that or the, the prosecutors trying to to convict uh, whoever's responsible. You know, like I, I know I'm, I'm still living in this like childlike delusion that prosecutors actually want to put like all of the people responsible for the death of children behind bars. But apparently in this case, they're very much disinterested in, in, in fact, actively covering up John Doe, too, who is, in my opinion, clearly you know, culpable right along with McVeigh for what transpired that day. Uh, let me let me bring up this tweet because uh, it was actually from you. It says, everyone else has been a coward. This is a huge story. This guy is the goddamn attorney general. Uh, this is from Ken Silva. He says, I think we touched on it, but it bears repeating. The sit sitting U.S. attorney general was involved in the OKC cover-up. He says, what my article doesn't discuss, but which I previously reported last year, is Merrick Garland's mysterious visit with none other than Hillary Clinton the night before he was in court prosecuting McVeigh. I mean, the night before. That's pretty wild. And Oh, go ahead. Yes, this is actually very interesting because what happened here is on April 21st, Merrick Garland, he's the, you know, the, the chief person leading the prosecution. On April 21st, he flies to Oklahoma City. So he's down there in Oklahoma City and he's preparing for this preliminary hearing that's coming up on April 27th. And so he's working on this every day. This is his number one priority. And what we found here is I did a Freedom of Information Act request to the Clinton Library uh, for the Secret Service logs of who is visiting the White House. Uh, they keep logs of that. And this was for another reason entirely. We were looking, me and Jesse Trinidou and Roger Charles were looking for something specific. But what I found is I, I began reviewing the Secret Service logs. And what I saw in there is that Merrick Garland actually visited and had an appointment with FLOTUS or First Lady of the United States. And this meeting occurred the day before the preliminary hearing, April 26th. And I started thinking about it, I'm like, well, wait, he was in Oklahoma City on the 21st. So you're telling me instead of picking up a phone and calling her, this was so sensitive that he flew 
back to the White House just to have this meeting. That's big. What's that about? Yeah. Yeah, that's really big. Uh, let me let me just read it for the audience that's listening. Sure. Uh, Ken Silva says, uh, what my article doesn't discuss, but which I previously reported last year, is Merrick Garland's mysterious visit with none other than Hillary Clinton the night before he was in court prosecuting McVeigh and steering away from John Doe too. Quote, Garland goes to Oklahoma April 21st. I hadn't seen anything indicating that he went to D.C., but I asked Richard Booth to get the White House visitor logs from the Clinton Library, and there's Merrick Garland meeting with Hillary Clinton. Uh, that's, end quote, Roger Charles. He yes. says, uh, that would have been the most important hearing in Garland's uh, advice, as he's and he's not doing anything related to the hearing exempt, perhaps getting, or except, I assume. Yeah, except. That's what uh, he had to say. Yeah, perhaps getting instructions from the Clintons on where not to go. That's what Jesse Trenadu says. And then uh, Garland's life, not Garland's advice. And then he says, as Jesse noted, if Garland's meeting with Hillary Clinton was innocuous, it couldn't have been handled over the phone. Instead, there Garland flies to D.C., then flies immediately back to OKC. What was so sensitive? It had to be discussed in person. Absolutely. Those so are all fair I questions. Saw, they are. <laughs> and when I saw that he was meeting with Hillary Clinton, um, it was quote, really, really strange. And so I started thinking about it. And I thought, well, let's look at Merrick Garland's performance at that preliminary hearing the next day and see if anything stands out. Mm. And I did see two things that stood out. And that would be any time... Um, the chief witness, John Hersley, an FBI agent who is, you know, he's, he, he's, they're putting forward a case to show that the government has a case to proceed against Tim right. McVeigh. And anytime that witness was asked about John Doe number two, Merrick Garland objected. And anytime uh, his witness was asked about surveillance tapes, he objected. And what happened is, is on one of those objections, it was he was overruled. And his witness, John Hersley, then confirmed under oath that one of their witnesses uh, confirmed that the Ryder truck had two people in it and the individual representing Mr. McVeigh was the driver. And so I think about that and I think, you know, what I can say or what I can conclude from this is I think that Hillary, uh, as first lady, she probably had different things delegated to her to handle for Bill Clinton throughout the presidency. You know, he, they kind of were being the president together, kind of. And so she's helping him with PR and different things. And I, it looks to me a lot like she was delegated the Oklahoma City bombing to handle things on that. I'm just speculating here, but that's what it seems to be. And um, the fact that Garland didn't call her on the phone, that's really weird. Oh, me. it's huge. It's yeah. huge. Come on. I mean, there's something big there. All right. right. Well, let's speculate a little bit more, man. Um, I mean, first off, for those that aren't familiar, I believe it was the, the Waco siege that began. It was one year prior to that attack. Is that correct? Two years. I believe 93. Two years, okay. Yeah, but but was it was it done on the anniversary though? Yes, it was April nineteenth. The is when okay. the the fiery, you know, in the end of the siege, right? Where basically, right. they murdered all the children. Yeah, and and was that the the espoused motivation either by McVeigh Nichols or the prosecution? It was absolutely McVeigh's motive was okay. revenge for Waco. Yeah, and and was it? I mean. He, he's obviously attacking a government building. Um, was he privy to the fact that there was children inside? Was that part of the vengeance factor that like you burn children? So do I. That's a very good question. And here's why. That absolutely is correct. 
it was the fact that he knew there were children in that building. The problem is, is when he goes on CNN and he is, or goes on 60 Minutes, that is, and he's interviewed by Ed Bradley, and he was asked about the children being in the building. He looked away for a minute and he looked you know, like he was contemplative and deep thought, and there is a long pause. And then he says to Ed Bradley, I thought it was terrible that there were children in the building. Now, interesting. Okay, let's pause here. What actually happened is Tim McVeigh knew that there was a daycare in the building because he had been there. He actually visited the daycare, and I have the FBI 302 reports from the manager of the daycare, Danielle Hunt, and she identified Tim McVeigh as having shown up a couple of weeks before the bombing, and he is dressed sort of like a soldier. He has on camouflage pants and stuff, but what she noted is that because she's in a building with many uh, military people, and she recognizes what is an official regulation uniform, and she said that the, Tim McVeigh was not dressed uh, in a proper uh, military fashion. And she thought that was a little unusual for the people who usually came in to drop mm -hmm. off kids. Mm -hmm. And she also noted that uh, Tim McVeigh, uh, he ostensibly, he tells her that he uh, is moving to the area and then he has two young children. And so he wants a tour of the daycare. And uh, she noted that he never once mentioned the names or the genders of his children, which if you're a parent, you know how unusual that is. And she mm -hmm. took notice of that. Um, mm -hmm. Now, what he seemed most interested in, she said, was the uh, security situation and if there were any surveillance cameras. And one thing she noted, too, is he, he walked up to the window and there's this huge, massive window that was just like floor to ceiling and it was it's all glass. And he's looking at it and he said, there is so much glass here. There's so much glass. Oh and in God, retrospect, man. that is just horrifying. But that's so dark. It very dark. But what it tells you is he knew there were kids there. Yeah. And I believe that that was exactly what you said. For him, it was, okay, you're gonna kill kids at Waco. Well, an eye for an eye. But yep. he later tried, I think, in his public relations effort to deny that. But no, that absolutely was the motive. Well, it, and it, it could just be that he was off crystal meth because he had been in prison and, and now he's having more of a moral dilemma with what he had done. But regardless, I think that in the evidence that you've just presented is like it's pretty clear it was intentional that he was trying to target the children of, you know, federal government employees. Um, man, that is so sad. Uh, what, yeah. Was it was it floor level? Was that where was, the daycare was? It was like on the second floor. Okay. So it would have been like right there. It would have been right where the blast is. Absolutely. Oh, that's he parked right terrible. next to it, you know. Oh, yeah. He targeted it. What a piece it's of shit. Hor horrifying. Yes. All right. So I got to ask the question. How many how many kids died in that event? Do you know? Well, I know you had like 168 people who killed and who were killed. Uh, I don't know the exact count of the number of children who died. But it had I to be a, significant. It, it absolutely was significant. Um, you know, you're talking about probably at least 20. Yeah. You know, well, that's not, not dissimilar to, to Waco in terms of yeah. numbers too. So it's, uh, man, what a dark thing. All right. So let's, let's speculate a little bit more about, you know, what you think Yiki saw. Uh, I mean, it, right. cause like there's, I think that if there is a collapse, you could see blowout patterns that would, if, if you're not seeing the surveillance video, but you're just arriving and you're seeing like what looks like projection coming from the building, you could misunderstand that 
perhaps the the explosion was not coming from within. But if he saw the surveillance video and he sees what he thinks is is a, a demolition that that you know coincides with the the bomb blast outside, uh, obviously that would raise red flags to him that this is this is a more complicated uh, attack and one that is being covered up. At least half of half of which is being covered up. Do you have any opinion after all of your years of deep diving as to what he may have seen? Yes, I have two main suspicions as to what it might be. Um, one of them is I believe he may have seen at the site evidence on scene of either uh, lo looking at the columns up close, something mm -hmm. that would indicate to you there were charges here or possibly even some sort of defuse device, something in person at the scene that was to his mind evidence that everything isn't quite what we're being told. Right. That's the, the one possibility. The other, of course, being seeing the surveillance video. Okay. Whatever it was, it was something that was convincing enough to him that he was very upset about it. So it yeah. wasn't just suggestive. It sounded to me like it was concrete. Yeah, well, or at least he interpreted it as being concrete, whether or not right. it was. Um, I mean, that's just absolutely fascinating. After your research, do you have any evidence to, you know, agree with his assessment that, in fact, there was explosives used within the building or an attempt at such? I do get questions about that a lot. And um, the difficult thing on that is that, you know, I'm not um, an expert on explosives. So I'll say sure. that straight up front. But um, one thing I also like to say is that I'm not going to write anything off. I think everything should be analyzed. And I'm all for someone who is an expert on explosives and things like that to take a look at this. I'm not going to reject it out of hand. Now, having said that, we do know that uh, someone uh, named his name is Ray Brown, and he worked for um, uh, I don't remember the name offhand, but it's something involving um, U.S. Geological Survey, I think. Anyway, they had they had these devices that um, um, detect seismic activity, and um, he had these reports that showed the um, basically this the signature of the uh, movement of the Earth at the time of the explosion. It's like a you know geological recording of the seismic activity, and what Ray Brown said is that he saw two distinct um, events very close to one another, which indicated to him that there were two very large blasts that were very close and next to one another. And he interpreted hmm. it and others interpreted it as evidence that you have a truck bomb going off and you also have explosives going off. Now, for me, that is interesting, but not being an expert, I can't really comprehend it to the level that I need to comprehend it to endorse it. Um, yeah. No, but, I, that's, I'm just asking for, for yeah. theories here and, and speculation, sure. not, sure, not anything sure. firm. And, and also let me, let me add, you know, to, to give kind of the more benign explanation, perhaps there's damage that's done to the building and then the, the support beams shortly after the initial explosion, they give out and then you have the building collapse and that could cause seismic activity that could be reflected potentially. I don't know. Right. Sure. You could have that. I think the seismic activity w was so extensive as such, though, that it definitely indicated a, a blast. A dual a blast. Okay. Force. Interesting. Yeah. 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 So you have that 
And you also have the fact that the uh, bombing, when you look at it, um, you see the blast pattern was asymmetrical, where you have columns mm -hmm. that are further away from the rider truck, um, which were completely demolished, you know? Oh, and interesting. Then ones that are closer to it are still left standing. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Not at all. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, then, okay, let's just put on our total Alex Jones cap here and say that this is in some part an FBI operation and you have some players that are involved that are, are you know, terrorists and they're, they're actually trying to commit a terrorist act. Um, do you think that they would have been privy? I, I would assume not to the internal explosion as well, or would you imagine that they would have been responsible for setting those charges? Because I, I can't, I have no idea. Yeah, I, I don't think that the FBI would have been responsible for that. I don't think, I think it's unlikely they would have been privy to it. There is a leading theory among some of the researchers on this that basically you have an FBI sting operation that's going on and there are informants within it. And this theory says that these intelligence figures, some of which are connected to uh, Operation Phoenix in Vietnam, which was carrying out terrorism and false flag terror events to okay. terrorize the populace. Um, they believe that these intelligence figures became cognizant of this FBI operation. They penetrated the FBI operation and they made it go sideways. And in doing this, this would be a way to, for you to be able to carry out a terrorist attack and then guarantee that the later investigation was totally compromised because mm. you used FBI assets in it. And the FBI will go to great lengths to conceal anything that's embarrassing to the Bureau. So this theory, yeah, it says that these, what, what they call domestic gladio mm -hmm. um, assets who basically are the kinds of people who are carrying out acts of terrorism for an ulterior motive and um, the best way they see to go about doing that is to compromise this ongoing fbi operation to guarantee later during the investigation it's totally covered up um, so is is this operation gladio domestic gladio is it is it a like a cia operation right. It, it is it's it, domestic gladio is largely viewed as a cia uh, operation that is based upon uh, the original Gladio, which was right. uh, take, you know, carried out overseas, mainly in Italy, but in other countries where um, acts of terrorism, bombings were carried out right. and they were blamed on leftists, but really they were carried out by um, far right fascists. Yes. And they did this to, to cause the population to beg for uh safety fascism yeah, <laughs> yeah. well it, yeah and, exactly and it, and it works pretty well yeah. um all right so it, i mean if that's the popular theory then that implies that that the cia has a purpose in allowing or or in some way making this explosion happen and the fbi covers up because they are unwittingly involved am i misreading yes. that that's exactly right. That's well, that's what the theory says. And I urge, if people want to know about that, I urge them to follow on Twitter, uh, Boltzmann Booty. Uh, he, that's his, his Twitter handle. And he, what he did is he went through the archive that I put online in 2019 with thousands of documents. And he began pulling out information from the archive and from documents that showed an abnormally 
a large number of CIA assets and CIA figures were connected up to Roger Moore, uh, the individual who supplied funding and detonators for the bombing and served as a chief witness. And then you also have a whole bunch of these CIA figures surrounding Andy Strassmeyer, who is a German national living at Elohim City, where the bombing, we believe, was largely planned. And so if you have these CIA figures surrounding those two and inserting themselves into this whole thing through those two, um, you certainly can see that there is a, you know, in the, in the realm of conspiracy theories, it's one that is supported by a good deal of circumstantial evidence. And I like to, um, you know, I, I will usually swat down any theories that I believe are not supported by any evidence or, sure. you know, and this is one that I, I see actually, if you just put it this way, if you'd have told me, you know, 20 years ago or 10 years ago that CIA was involved in the Oklahoma City bombing, I would have said, you're crazy. Right. That's absurd. Um, but then when I look at the evidence that's presented, I can say with certainty that Roger Moore was, in fact, a CIA asset. He was a paymaster and an arms dealer. Uh, connected up to various CIA groups that were involved in Iran-Contra. We know that for a fact. Um, and, and we also know for a fact that he funded the Oklahoma City bombing, right? Absolutely correct. All right. Well, then I think I have to ask the next obvious question. What is the purpose? If, right. if we buy that thesis, why is the CIA allowing or maybe even making this happen? Right. Now, that's a great question. And I think the leading theory that, that people put forward is, is that um, the, these security state agencies have a vested interest in ensuring that the population is terrorized because they're more easily controlled. They can pass uh, any legislation they need for additional roving, like roving wiretaps and things mm -hmm. like the Patriot Act. And ultimately, the goal, it seems, would be to simply to terrorize people because now, you know, their great boogeyman, the USSR, is gone. And their new um, enemy, of course, is terrorism. Mm -hmm. And it just benefits these agencies greatly when something like this happens because they then are in a position to get much greater funding. they get laws passed that will benefit them. But overall, it's still uh, a question that doesn't, you know, I don't have a good answer for it. And the only thing I can say is you go back and look at Gladio. It's the same reason they were doing it there. Right. You know? Well, do you think that, um, I mean, allegedly the president has some level of oversight over the CIA? Uh, do you think that Bill Clinton would have been privy to the CIA's involvement in this? I think that's certainly possible. Okay. Absolutely. Oh, goodness gracious. What a crazy story, man. Um, yes. All right. Well, before we get out of here, because we're running out of time, uh, let's do the the Trinidad side of this thing. And I know I'm going to truncate it very hard, but uh, if you could, please. Yes, absolutely. So uh, basically, Kenneth Trinidad was an individual who he was crossing the border from Mexico to the United States in August of 1995. And he was driving a brown pickup truck. And at that time, the largest manhunt in the FBI's history was ongoing for John Doe number two. John Doe number two, uh, his physical description matched Jesse or Kenneth Trinidad's almost exactly. They had the same physical description, including the dragon tattoo on his arm. Mm. And it was believed that John Doe two may have been in Mexico or Canada. So they're looking at these crossing points for people who match this description. Um, when he comes over across the border, uh, his identity is confirmed and they see um, in their records there that this is a person who's on parole who has violated his uh, or on, on uh, 
probation. He's violated his probation or parole. And ultimately what it was is like he he wasn't allowed to drink and he didn't like he thought I'm going to drink beer if I want. So he did. And so he's in violation. But the key thing is they note that he, what he's on um, parole for is bank robbery. And it is believed that some of these three or four people we talk about who were seen in Oklahoma City with McVeigh that morning and the people he's associating with at LOM City were uh, these group of neo-Nazi bank robbers. Mm -hmm. And that same LA Times article in April that talks about the four or five people also mentions the fact that they believe the bombing was was related to a series of bank robberies that were carried out. So this is the MO uh, that they're looking at and this is the description they're looking at. And Kenneth Trinidu matches it perfectly. Physical description, and the criminal record. So what they do is uh, authorities so take him. He, and, he really fucked up being in the wrong place at the wrong time than with the wrong background. Absolutely right. Wrong place, wrong time, wrong background. It was definitely a case of mistaken identity. And what they do is he's transferred to a, a, a federal transfer center in Oklahoma City um, on, I want to say it was like um, August 18th. Um, and he is booked into that facility, interestingly, under his alias that he used back when he he'd carried out just a couple bank robberies, like in the late 70s, because he came back from Vietnam with a heroin habit. And uh, he did that to fund this heroin habit. But the good news is, you know, he became sober. He served his time. He was a model prisoner. He got out. His, he was life was doing was great. He just had a, a young son. He had just got married. He had a job. He was following the straight and narrow, except for maybe, you know, he's drinking beer, doesn't like the parole. So uh, they send him to Oklahoma City, is at the Federal Transfer Center. On the 19th, he spoke on the phone to his brother, Jesse Trinidou, and his wife. Uh, he was upbeat. He was feeling good. Uh, they talked about the legal strategy. Look, you're just going to serve a couple months, probably. Everything will be fine. And uh, they left it at that. He was he was okay. And then we find that inexplicably, he was then transferred to the special housing unit at the Federal Transfer Center, which is where you put people who might be um, uh, suicidal or mm -hmm. maybe people who you uh, are threats to other inmates, sure. things like that. So he's moved to the special housing unit and there's no reason given for him being moved there. Uh, the, the order that moved him there was completely blank, according to the medical examiner. And then within a day after being in the special housing unit, he was found dead there. Now, he, he although he was found dead, uh, they claimed that he was found hanging. What you find is that he had uh, ligature marks on his neck where flex cuffs had been put on his neck, and he basically was uh, asphyxiated. His hyoid bone was broken. The blood vessels in his eyes were popped. You can see on the pictures uh, that, that he's got the ligature mark and you can see he has bruises all over his body, including on the insides of his biceps, where it's obvious that someone's holding him down and he has uh, taser burns on his, or, uh, that is stun gun, not taser, stun gun burns on his face. And oh, so God. what becomes apparent from the body is that he was absolutely beaten and tortured. And what Jesse Trinidou condemns, and what I also agree with, is that we believe that he was subject to an enhanced interrogation because he fit a profile of some of these other suspects. And they believed that he was uh, one of these people, and they took it uh, until his death. 
And Jesse has reason to believe this. He was contacted anonymously in 1995. Uh, he, he got a phone call and the, the person said, I want to let you know that your brother, Kenneth Trinidou, was murdered. It was a case of mistaken identity. It was a, uh, an interrogation gone wrong. They thought that he was uh, one of these bank robbers who was connected to the Oklahoma City bombing. And Jesse kind of left it at that. He didn't really know what to think of it. But then a journalist named J.D. Cash contacted him and provided him with more evidence. And then so Jesse started looking into it. He started doing FOIA requests. And then he all of a sudden it made sense to him why all these crazy things were happening. Like, for example, the crime scene was cleaned up immediately. The day after the body was found, the entire cell was cleaned. Uh, they tried to cremate the body to get rid of the evidence. The order uh, sending him to the special housing unit disappeared. And then two years later, it reappeared. And now all of a sudden, it's not blank anymore. Now it says that he was moved there because he's, he was claiming other prisoners were out to get him. Uh, the chief medical examiner uh, came forward and says he believes Kenneth Trinidou was murdered. And it's obviously a murder if you look at the crime scene. And that medical examiner was then basically bullied and threatened by the FBI, and they muzzled him and prevented him uh, from speaking out on it. So this whole thing, if you look at the Trinidou case, just if you just Google Kenneth Trinidou, you're going to find all kinds of material. And on my archive, I have a great deal of material, an entire section for the Jesse Trinidou case where people can find information about it. Just as with Terry Yiki, you find an individual who died as a result of the Oklahoma City bombing, probably at the hands of feds. And it's a clear cut case of murder. Uh, just as with Terry Yiki, and it's even probably more evidence because with Kinney, at least, we have photos. We have photos of the crime scene. We have photos of the body, and that's very powerful. When you look at that, you know that this man did not kill himself. No, clearly not. I mean, he suffered a worse fate than Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, they didn't. <laughs> he they, put up a they, fight. Yeah, they really they really beat him, and, and it's it's heartbreaking, especially for a guy who would you know, gone through so much and then was getting his life back on the right track. Um, but I mean, Yiki's a, a similar, uh, you know, heroic figure in my eyes. And, and both of these people were, in my opinion, clearly murdered. And in my opinion, clearly murdered by either either FBI agents or the CIA. And I don't know which. Uh, do you have, uh, well, I guess, ha have you ever said on this interview clearly who you believe John Doe 2 was? I haven't said that because actually I don't, I don't know who John Doe 2 was. Um, that remains to this day a mystery, and that is the precise reason why I think it was a Fed. Because mm -hmm. if there were a white supremacist figure who was John Doe 2... Yeah, they'd I just think, bury the guy. I mean, yeah, why wouldn't they? Exactly. They'd burn him. They, they're yeah. not going to hide it like this. The only reason to hide it is if the guy's a Fed. So I believe it was probably either someone connected to the FBI's domestic terrorism operations unit which is called DTOU the reason i believe that is because terry nichols was being interviewed by the fbi in 2007 uh, as he was about to be interviewed by a congressional committee and in those interviews we have the documents from the fbi as jesse obtained those via foia and what those documents say is that um, the fbi's domestic terrorism operations unit said that they were worried and concerned that Terry Nichols was going to mention the name of John Doe number two to the congressman who's going to be interviewing him. And then the FBI's uh, counterterrorism division said in a, um, in a document, in, a, in an email, that they share DTOU's concerns. 
And their only reason to be concerned about that is if this guy's a liability to the FBI. Man. All right. So we still have, I mean, uh, I'm blanking on his name right now, but the, the guy, uh, the guy that's still in prison, what's his name? Nichols. Yeah. Nichols. Yeah. I mean, he knows, he knows who John Doe two is by that. I believe so. Yeah. He has said that he knows who it is, and he has said that it's not any of the names that have been mentioned in connection to possibly Holy being shit. him. So that rules out this so-called, this Iraqi, which is a total BS rabbit hole, that rules out a couple of these white supremacist figures who, yep. uh, honestly, none of them even match the physical description. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's something that's very interesting to me, and I think that Terry Nichols uh, hopefully one day will say something more about that, like he has talked about Roger Moore. Um, but yeah. it speaks volumes that the FBI was worried about that. Well, I mean, just the fact that that Nichols is still alive tells me that he he probably knows the deal. Like, you don't say this, and maybe right. we let you live in prison. Um, that's right, man. What a what a crazy horrifying story, but uh, your research on it has been invaluable. Go ahead and tell my audience where they can learn further and where they can follow you as well. Absolutely. So people, if they're interested in this case, I um, urge you to go to uh, libertarianinstitute.org slash OKC. And when you go there, you will find my archive of all of these news clippings and FBI documents and so forth. And new students can go there to dig in and uh, get up to speed on the case. They yeah. can uh, also find uh, my essays are in Substack. It's at richardbooth.substack.com. I'm also on Twitter, and that's uh, booth underscore OKC. And I'll, I'll usually post anytime I've written a new essay or something, I'll post it out there on Twitter. You can also find my essays in Garrison Magazine. It's called Garrison, the Journal of History and Deep Politics. Man, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate people like you that, that do this work. Um, it's not even safe work to be doing. So it takes some courage too. And it takes just a, a, a relentless belief and pursuit in the truth. And uh, I'm in awe. I really, I really appreciate what you're doing. So thank you, man. And uh, I'll link, I'll link below. So everyone in the audience can go follow support and, and check out your work and uh, keep up the good fight, man. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate it. And I just urge everybody just to go out and look at the evidence. I'm convinced that anyone who is a reasonable person who looks at the evidence will come to the same conclusion that there are others involved. And all we need is that is for more people to look at the evidence. I love it. All right, folks, you have your marching orders. Go, <laughs> go solve this. All right. Uh, thank you again, Richard. It was, it was a fantastic deep dive. And, and I think people are going to, a lot of people are going to have uh, their eyes open for this one. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go?